We have been going through this series on the life of David. Is something that, you know, we've been getting to this point. There are kind of three different parts of his story, or kind of three main sections. You guys know kind of like how they're in books or even in stories, there's kind of, you know, different parts of a story where, you know, yes, there are chapters and scenes and things like that, but then they're like kind of just main overall seasons. You know, it could be three different, you know, Avengers movies. You know, it could be three different books kind of in that sense. And in that, David was someone who went through kind of three different seasons of his life. The first season of his life was his being anointed. It was his time of kind of just God choosing him and showing that he was someone that God had chosen because he was after his own heart. In a world with people who looked great on the outside, people that were just trying to look the part, God went past what we would normally look at, and he chose someone in the back because he knew his heart and he knew that he would lead well. And he goes through this season of waiting. He goes through the season of kind of being recognized by all of Israel for his defeat of Goliath, even the leading of the Israelites um, in battle. It's kind of, he's, he's kind of the man on the block. He's, he's fresh, he's new, he's the man. God is obviously with him. Saul takes offense to that, and Saul becomes jealous. Saul doesn't address his own heart, and he begins to persecute him. And it begins to, his jealousy turns into this kind of destructive nature. He wants to kill David. He wants to hurt David in any way that he can, and it consumes him. And you can see just something even about jealousy. When you're jealous of something or you want something, it tends to get farther away from you when your jealousy overrides you. And so David became even more strong, and he became even more weak, even in his destruction. And so it led to this point where he actually had to run. He had to be exiled from his own kind of country, and here is this current wicked king persecuting him. So you could imagine some of the confusion going around Israel at that time. And that's kind of the second season that we find ourselves in in this story is this time where, you know, you talk about the pasture, you talk about being the shepherd and being the king, but there was this time in the desert, I would like to describe it as, this time in exile that he was, where he was just kind of seen as a nobody, maybe by his own people. Actually, it says by his own people, he was seen as kind of a rebel, even to many people. His name had been slandered. His, his, his integrity had been questioned by his own country that God had called him to lead because of what Saul had said. And so you find himself in the season, what we find, as we talked about last week, this group of kind of disgruntled people came around him and it became his army. It's kind of this ragtag team of people that came around. And what you read in this story is that Saul's jealousy became so bad that he began to pursue David to kill him. And he was going out after him. And it said that Saul had asked, he had taken 3,000 of his best warriors going up against now 600 of David's warriors. 3,000 to 600 is not good odds if they go on a battle against each other. And so David is on the run, and he finds himself in this place hiding in this cave. And Saul finds him, and that's where we find ourselves this morning. If you're in chapter 24, sorry, I don't know if I mentioned that. Chapter 24, that's where we're reading this this morning. Probably one of the most impactful, incredible stories that you can read throughout the time of David. It's 1 Samuel 24, verse 1. This is what it says. After Saul had returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told David is in the desert of En Gedi. 
So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there. And Saul went in to relieve himself. Gross. And his men were far back in the cave. And the men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. So one of David's commanding officers Saul goes in to relieve himself in a cave in En Gedi, and um, I've had the honor of being actually at En Gedi, and it's all these caves that are everywhere on the hills. Some of them are a lot harder to get to, so it'd be a good place to hide out if you were an army. So Saul goes into a cave to relieve himself, but not knowing way back in the cave is the actual army himself. Basically, Saul was handed on a silver platter to David, and one of his officers says, this is the day. This is the day. God has given you this opportunity to take out this man who has slandered you, who is wicked, who has murdered. And what it says next is this. It says, afterward, or it said, then David crept up unnoticed and cut off a corner of Saul's robe. Afterward, David was conscience stricken for having cut off a corner of his robe. I love that so much about this story because here's a man who was justified to kill him. And yet all he did was cut off an edge of his robe and he would feel guilty. He would, like something told him that that wasn't right. Even to do that, that's grace. Continues on to say, he said to his men, the Lord forbid that I should do such a thing to my master, the Lord's anointed, or lay my hand on him, for he is the anointed of the Lord. And with these words, David sharply rebuked his men and did not allow them to attack Saul. And Saul left the cave and went his way. Then David went out of the cave and called to Saul, My Lord the King. When Saul looked behind him, David bowed down. David bowed down and prostrated himself with his face to the ground. And he said to Saul, Why do you listen when men say David is bent on harming you? This day you have seen with your own eyes how the Lord delivered you into my hands in the cave. Some urged me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not lay my hand on the Lord because he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, look at this piece of your robe in my hand. I cut off the corner of your robe but did not kill you. See that there is nothing in my hand to indicate that I am guilty of wrongdoing or rebellion. I have not wronged you, but you are hunting me down to take my life. And may the Lord judge between you and me. And may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me. But my hand will not touch you. As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds. So my hand will not touch you. Against whom has the king of Israel come out? Whom are you pursuing? A dead dog? A flea? May the Lord be our judge and decide between us. And may he consider my cause and uphold it. May he vindicate me by delivering me from your hand. When David finished saying this, Saul asked, Is that your voice, David, my son? And he wept aloud. You are more righteous than I, he said. You have treated me well, but I have treated you badly. You have just now told me about the good you did to me. The Lord delivered me into your hands, but you did not kill me. When a man finds his enemy, does he let him get away unharmed? May the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be the king, and that the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now swear to me by the Lord that you will not kill off my descendants or wipe out my name. For my father's family. So David gave his oath to Saul. And then Saul returned home. But David and his men went up back into the stronghold. Can we say amen together?
This is one of the greatest demonstrations of God's grace and mercy in the entire Bible. Not exaggerating that. This is true. It wasn't just that Saul was failing or stumbling at life. But he was violently attacking David. You see, up to this point, Saul in his, his wickedness and in his own destruction had hurt others. He had murdered others to try and get to David. David had been exiled. His name had been slandered. His very identity put to question by the very country that God had purposed him for. David was feeling the weight of the world, not only on himself and his own identity, but literally he was about to be killed. For him to walk out of that cave, first of all, to spare him, but then to walk out of that cave and say, Saul, and prostrate himself, that was risky. That was putting everyone at risk to be killed. Saul could have just turned around and killed him right there, but he didn't. You could even imagine his army and how they felt. Here they all are on the run, hiding in a cave. And he's just delivered into his hands. This is their ticket to freedom. This is it. This is how we're going to get out of this. This is how we're going to make things right. And David would actually not only not do it, but he says that he sharply rebuked his own men for even thinking about touching the other person, even though he was most wronged by him. That's grace. And that is mercy. See, this is a picture of the cross. Because in the same way that David was persecuted and put in a place where he could rightfully kill, so in our own sin and in our own shortcoming, we found ourselves in a place where God and his justice could rightfully not let us into heaven. And you know what God's response was? He sent his son Jesus to be with us and to die for us. See, that was his response of mercy to someone's evil done to him. It's a picture of the Sermon on the Mount. How many of you know the Sermon on the Mount? Sermon on the Mount is a, it's a piece of scripture in Matthew chapter 5 through 7. A lot of people say it was, was kind of Jesus' outcoming um, kind of party in a sense or sermon to really relay what the kingdom of heaven was really like. And you could take each one of those stories And you could relate it to this one. Because David embodies what it's like to be in the kingdom of God. See, when you look at this, when you look at David's response, this wasn't just a one-time decision in David's heart. But it's truly his posture and how he felt about Saul before God. You see, this story wasn't just something that happened randomly. It wasn't like... David rolled a dice and whatever number came up was going to be his response. This was an outpouring of his own heart towards someone like Saul in his life. You see, when it came to the mercy and even the the posture that he would take, he would get down on his knees. And he would go like this to his own enemy, to the one who would slander him. See, that doesn't just happen. That's something truly from the heart. And that is fruit from the heart. Just like he even says, from evildoers come evil deeds. What, what is happening in your heart will come out of your mouth, will come out of your actions. You can hide it, but eventually, who you really are is going to come out. See, this is something that was happening. This is a working that was happening behind closed doors. How you feel about people 
Behind closed doors is how you'll feel about them in public. And ultimately this, how you treat people before God is how you'll treat them when you're in front of them. When you're alone with God in your room and you're talking to him about people and you're talking about your life to them, how you talk about them is going to determine how you treat them when you're face to face. When I was in Colorado, I went through a season of sickness I got pneumonia, and I had a lung disorder that I was dealing with. It was, it was a serious thing. It caused me to step out of my job for a couple months. And I remember during that season of time, see, there was, I had worked on a tennis team. I was a tennis coach, and I had one of the players. He was from Spain, but he was living with a mom who worked in the tennis community. They were kind of just like adopting him in a sense for the season of time. Instead of living in a dorm, he wanted to live with a family, and so he lived with them. And while I was sick, there was a huge discrepancy about his scholarship money. He wanted more scholarship. He wanted more money to pay for his school. But the athletic department said, no, we can't give you any more money, and it caused this huge rift. And I was in the hospital the whole time this was happening, and so I wasn't doing any of it. And I remember this lady, this, this woman was, was like a mom to me, to be honest, because when I was in the hospital, my mom could only come for a week and a half. It was one of the hardest things she had to be with and say that I couldn't be there for you because just work and life and everything. And so once I got to a decent enough health, her and my uh, dad went home, but she was like the surrogate mom to me. And it was, it was an incredible thing that God did. But when this happened, because she was over this player, it was like... Mama Bear came out. You know what I'm talking about when Mama Bear comes out? And it's like, you, it became defense mode. And in everything, she felt justified to treat and talk about people however she wanted. And for some reason, she thought it was my fault that this was happening. I wasn't in, I wasn't in any of it. And there began this slander. There began this hate. Just railing. I remember some of the things that I was hearing through the grapevine that she was saying about me to my friends, to my co-workers, to players, and I remember just wrestling with this. The passive aggressiveness was as abundant as air. Amen? Like, it was all over the place. And so here I am trying to recover from pneumonia while going through all of this, and I just remember the frustration brewing in my own heart. There was, oh man, Everything in my power wanted to walk up to her desk at work and go, you are a brat. You cannot talk about people that way. Everything in my power wanted to walk up there and tell them why they were wrong and to justify myself. And I had it. I had it. She was acting out of control. But I remember just something in my heart. This story kept coming up in, in my heart. What would that solve? What would that do for me? You're called to love people even when they accuse you of wrongdoing. You're called to love people even when they put you in these situations where they question your own identity. And I remember being in that place. I remember my prayer life changed in a great way. And so when you talk about how you treat people before God is how you'll treat them when you're in front of them. I remember my prayers were like, God, please help me. I'm just so, so struggling right now. And that's probably how my voice sounded before God. And he was like, you. And I remember God saying, you need to change the way you pray about this. 
you're playing the victim's role in your own prayer. You're a victim. Let me tell you something about the kingdom of God. It's not that we can't be wronged in it. It can't be hard. Because, yes, it hurts to be those things happen. But the minute you take the role where it's all about you and all about how you've been wrong, no one knows what I'm going through in this, is the minute that you'll cut yourself off from reality. It'll be all about you and your hurt. You won't be able to see what God is doing in the moment. And I can remember talking to my parents on the phone one night just in tears because I was so frustrated about this. They said, you are called to love and you are called to trust this to God. Trust this to God right now. You're called to love those who are your enemies in nature or those who are different from you. That's what you see in this story. You see, God's love is defined by his mercy for those who are his enemies and those who are different. That's the message of the cross. That's why it's so radical. Jesus loved his enemies. Jesus didn't just love those who he tended to like. When you talk about what an enemy is from a biblical standpoint... There's a lot of definitions, but one of them is interesting is this. Someone who is different from you or takes a different stance from you is is your enemy. So it's not like, I have an arch enemy. You know, you're not Iron Man. Someone who is an enemy in your life is someone who can just see things differently from you. Someone that you tend to just not like because we're bent that way in our sinful nature. We're not going to like certain people. It's a stranger, someone who's foreign, even. What I would just say is this. If you're wondering how you're doing with Jesus right now, if you're wondering how you're doing with the Lord, ask yourself how you're treating your enemies right now. If you want to know how you're doing with Christ, ask yourself, how are you treating your enemies? Because just as Jesus would say, if you love those who just love you, What credit is that to you? You know, the bias sometimes when somebody says, look at how you're treating your enemies, it's like you project how you're treating your best friend sometimes. And so it's like, well, I think I'm doing good. But what if you cut out all your close friends and you just looked at the people who caused you the most hostility? Look at how you're treating them. Look at how you're entertaining them in your mind. Look at how you're talking about them. See, that will reveal more to you about your love for Christ because it's the very definition of Christ's love. It's to love those that hurt us, those who rub us the wrong way, those who stand in a Saul and a David kind of relationship. In fact, the Bible says that when you love your enemies, love itself is the ultimate sign of maturity. Loving people is the ultimate sign of maturity around you. And so when, when you look at people in your church and you say, do we have a mature group? It's not how many service hours they've done, or how many church events they've gone to. It's not their theology that determines how mature they are. It's their capacity to love people. In fact, I was just sitting down with a leader, um, Tyler, actually. I'm not going to get into the details of your story, but I just I appreciate you so much. He was someone who was, who was wronged, very, very wronged and slandered in a situation that happened recently. And I just remember sitting with him, and I just remember just even the love for the people who had wronged him. That's a sign of maturity. That is maturity at work, because that is love for those. Not coming out 
with guns blazing and just accusing. This is why they're wrong. No, 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 no. I know who I am, and I know what I've done. So far be it from my mouth to do the exact same thing that they're doing. See, your love and your hate for others is determined by your relationship with God. It's when your capacity and when your understanding of God's love grows, the more you're willing to show it to others. That's why David had a great capacity to love people versus maybe getting wrong one time and just blowing up. See, when you have a great capacity to love, it is unbelievable to see some of you guys and see just your capacity to be able to love in the midst of some of the worst circumstances, and it humbles me, just as your guys' pastor. It's incredible to see, and that's something that's from the Lord. Truly is from God. You see, he wouldn't just stop himself, but he would stop others. Loving your enemy means standing up for their dignity, even when they're wrong. See, loving your enemies means standing up for them as a person. And listen to this. It's not standing up for what they did. It's standing up for who they are in the Lord. Yes, they did wrong. But I will always stand for the respect of each person, and so will we will all. It's what Christ does. Even the most hateful and hurtful people around him, he stood up for them because they were children of God. That was their potential. That is everyone's potential. Loving your enemies is a matter of trust. This is something I want to talk about too this morning. See, sometimes we refuse to change our heart towards someone because we're too afraid to give them up to God. What I mean is this. Sometimes we feel this personal responsibility to correct and to, to guide people in their own relationship with God after they've wronged us. I know I wanted to do everything in my power to that woman, that mom that wronged me, to go up and tell her everything that she was doing wrong. That wasn't my place, nor would that have helped anyone in that way. If I had the opportunity and God made a way, of course, but he didn't. You see, the reason I was struggling with it is because I wasn't entrusting the, the situation to God. <laughs> I, I wasn't trusting that God would justify me. And so I did this. I, I prayed something. Actually, before I get into that, I want to say this. See, David didn't just roll over. I want you guys to know that. David didn't just, you know, show his tummy to Saul. That's not what he did. See, trusting God's judgment, correction, and mercy is the only way you'll be able to love your enemies. Being able to trust people with God is the only way you'll be able to overcome. I've prayed this prayer whenever I've found myself in a situation like I was with this mom. I pray this prayer. I say, just as David said, may the Lord judge between you and me. God, I pray that it would be put in your hands. I pray this prayer. I say, God, Lord, I want you to search my heart first. God, if I have done anything wrong, show it to me, correct me. And discipline me. But also do this, God. Would you make it known to my person that I'm struggling with that you corrected me so that they know that you work? See, that's the heart that we need to have before one another to say, God, in my correction, would you be glorified? Lord, in the eyes of my enemy, if that's the case. Even David would write in a psalm, he said, he was struggling, he was being pursued, and he said, God, if it is my fault... God, then punish me, is what he says. He's like, then would I be overrun? God, would I be given into your hands? But Lord, would you correct 
Would you discipline? Would you show mercy to my enemy if they're the one that's wrong? God, would you be glorified in it? And would you continue to teach me how to love others? There's another scripture if you guys want to turn to it. It's in Romans 12, 17 through 21. It's towards the end of your Bible. It's written by the Apostle Paul to the Roman church. And he talks about this very subject. And I just want to talk through this verse because it gives an idea of this is how you love your enemies practically. If you're in Romans, go to Romans chapter 12, verse 17. If you, if you don't have a Bible, I can read it to you. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil. Speaks directly to that. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. If it is possible, as far as it depends on you, live at peace with everyone. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath, for it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. On the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you'll heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. He says, do not repay anyone evil for evil, but be careful to do what's right. If it's possible, as much it depends on you, live at peace, which speaks so that you need to check your own heart before you check anyone else's out. It's your heart, it's your peace that you can control. And so as far as it depends on you, take care of your land. Take care of your inheritance and your space, your heart. But then he says something of this. He says, do not take revenge, but leave room for God's wrath. I think here's the thing that it speaks to. Trust God's judgment. See, God is a fair judge. In fact, earlier in Romans, Paul says, when we judge, we judge, we judge, judge. <laughs> we judge with partial information. It says when we judge others, we only have this much of the story. But God has the full story. God knows everything that happens. So when God judges, it's actually righteous, which is why you would entrust it to him instead of do it yourself. To continue the end of that story about that mom, I remember... I began to just change my prayers. Anytime I had an opportunity, I would be kind to her. She kept going off about me, railing on me. There's nothing worse than hearing through the grapevine people are talking. And I just remember saying, well, do you believe in that? Because this is my heart. You've seen my life. And then what ended up happening, so I was in the hospital for pneumonia. She got pneumonia. And I remember hearing about that, and she went quiet. She became very, very quiet. She recovered. But I remember that moment that I heard that she had pneumonia. I had a decision in my heart of what to do. Was I going to go, aha! God is a good judge! Absolutely not. That is not what I'm called to. That is not what you're called to. The prayers for her healing, the reaching out, writing a letter, asking her to be okay, telling her, I'm here for you if you need anything. I hope you get better. I just went through pneumonia. Mine was a little more complicated, but I hope yours doesn't go that way. And she was in and out, and she was fine. And I remember, actually, afterwards, there was something different about her, but, and we reconciled. She apologized. Reconciliation was made. Fortunately, our relationship was restored. But there's something about one, entrusting God because God knows everything. But just as it says here, 
If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. That is not saying, good, my enemies. Heaping burning coals on your head during that time, it was to purify things. And so when it says, when your enemy is hungry, feed him. You should be the first one there to feed them. You should be the one being proactive about loving them. If they're thirsty, give them something to drink. That will change them. Kindness changes people. If you hate your enemy, they'll become your enemy even more. If you love your enemy, they're more likely to become your friend. When you love, even when it's hard, it speaks something. And that's what you see in this story. You see, Saul was there, and you could see the heart change of, Oh my word, I have done this grievous evil to you. Forgive me. And he prophesies about David being the future king. You see, there was this moment where something changed in his heart, which I want us to take note of, because Saul had a God encounter at the end of this. He encountered God. But one thing that you notice about Saul's story is that he reverted, and he went back to his old ways. And I think that's big for us as a camp culture. How many of you have had a camp experience or have ever just had this "Ah!" moment with God? Thanks. Seventh grade choir. Yeah. Just kidding. But let me tell you something. Even the most God-filled moments won't change your heart unless you're willing to give your heart over to God. If you're not willing to pursue God in those moments, these are opportunities to draw close to God. You'll become even more wicked than you were before. See, that's the point of this story. God showed amazing grace, and he just took it and didn't change anything. And because of that, he regressed even more, which is unbelievable to think about. How could someone who experienced God's love that much be that jealous, destructive? And it's because God isn't looking for these aha moments. God is looking for a daily relationship with him. Saul was an aha moment relation to God. David was a daily follower That's why they're so different. Lastly, I think the thing that just is so important is that kindness disarms our enemies. Kindness is the only thing that will truly change us. You see, Jesus coming down to earth and yelling at us doesn't change our hearts. Jesus being honest but then dying on a cross changes us. Jesus changes us by his love, and it's the same love that we show to others that's going to arm them. So let me ask you something about that mom in that story. Do you think if I was like, aha, sucker, how do you like it, huh? Not so fun now, is it? That's what you did to me. Do you think that would have restored our relationship, nor shown the love of Christ to her? Absolutely not. Absolutely not. But loving her makes way for a restored relationship, which is exactly what Christ did. A lot of us in this room think that God is going, aha, sucker. That'd be a scary sight. But actually, God is laying down his life and saying, I forgive you and I love you and I want to be your, I want to be your God. I want to be your friend. Elisa, if you want to come up front. Right where you are, if you would just close your journals, close off your phones, go ahead and get them out. We're going to respond to the Lord right now.
Because I think this morning there are a lot of ways to respond to this story. And that God is speaking a lot to each of us in this room about this story. Maybe to a particular thing. And so I think just if you would close your eyes. And as you close your eyes, if you would just hold out your hands. Not because it makes you holier than others. But because this is the posture of your heart. You're humble in heart. And we're making, we're taking the posture just like David did. We're bowing down. We're bowing down and saying, I'm going to humble myself right now. God, we're going to humble ourselves before you. Maybe this morning you've been, you've been an enemy of God. Maybe you don't even know Jesus, but you think he's just mad at you and he's just ready to point the finger whenever you screw up. That is not our God. Our God is not like Saul. Our God is like David, who loves us and gives us the opportunity to restore relationship. So if that's you this morning and you need the forgiveness of Christ, you want to call on Christ as your Lord and Savior, make that decision right now. Say, Jesus, would you forgive me? Lord, I was your enemy by the way I lived my life. Maybe I've done things to hurt you, but Lord, you forgive me and you love me and you're calling me back. Jesus loves you and Jesus forgives you. and Jesus doesn't see you as this, this monster, this enemy, but he sees you as just a friend family. Maybe this morning you have someone in your life. We all have Saul's in our lives. We all have these people who are hurting us. Maybe we're feeling so insecure because we were so scared of what they're saying about us behind our back. You know, it's honorable for someone to have integrity, but it's even more honorable for someone to have integrity while their name is being slandered and remain in their integrity. Maybe this morning you just need to trust God because you can't talk to each and every person and say, this is what I'm like. But maybe you just need to trust God and what he says about you, just like David did. Maybe you need to say, God, I trust you with this situation. Lord, would you judge? Lord, would you check me? Lord, would you correct me? Lord, would you show mercy to me? Would you discipline me? Lord, because we know that your word says that you discipline those that you love. So Lord, would you love us? God, would you be honest with us? Lord, would you right wrongs? Lord, would you judge? But Lord, would you teach us how to love those in the exact same way that you loved your enemies? Lord, those who are by nature different from you, those who are hostile towards you. Lord, you love those who are hostile towards you today. Lord, you love those groups of people. Lord, you love the masses who are against you. Lord, you came down and died on a cross for them. And Lord, if you needed to do it again and again and again, you would. But Lord, it's been paid for. It is finished. It is available for us. It's right there in front of us, God. And so we pray, God, would you teach us how to love those who may be our enemies in nature. And Lord, we don't want to have any enemies, Lord. So Lord, would you, Lord, change the nature of the relationships, Lord, of those around us. Would you bring reconciliation wherever we need it? Lord, we lift that up to you this morning. All these things we pray in the mighty name of Jesus. Everyone said, Amen. Can we just applaud for the Lord this morning?